Welcome to Tactical Permaculture. I've worked on projects ranging from the poorest to richest clients, from inner cities to suburbs to farmlands to remote wilderness, from the eco-war front lines to celebrity backyards. In over 25 years of service to the earth and the community of life, I've learned that in the fight for sustainable survival, growing is half the battle. Go to tacticalpermaculture.com for more info. You gotta train for me Because I'm training for you We gotta love, love And revolution to do You better train for me You'll be training for you Episode 41, reading an essay originally written in the year 2001. This piece is actually, <laughs> there's a bit to say about the context of it in the history of my life, which is, um, it's, a, it's an essay that I wrote uh, when I was still at university, the University of Oregon, and was deeply involved with the quote-unquote intelligentsia of the green anarchist movement some people would say that it was uh very in some senses uh there was a mecca going on there in that area uh with the forest activism earth first activism lots of deep ecologists and gardeners and herbalists and radical radical hippie types with an anarchist background and and to some extent um punk rock anarcho-punk sensibilities, certainly a high degree of feminism, eco-feminism, and um, due in no small part to the academic college town environment, there's just there was just a huge amount of scholarship around the issues that we were that we were organizing around and, and fighting for and fighting against and whatnot. So I considered a real blessing uh, in some ways a curse because the hyper intellectual toxic often hyper masculine group think and sort of cultishness of people thinking they have all the answers figured out and thinking that they're uh, the most supreme and elite in their intellect and in their their critique and analysis of the state of the world and in our case we were uh, my sort of tribe we were very much um, seriously promoting the the science and philosophy and ideology, although we resisted the term ideology. <laughs> we, we were advocating for anarcho-primitivism, which is a heavily anthropologically influenced wing of anarchist theory and practice or praxis and thought and really focuses on an understanding that's come to light through not just intuitive um, revisioning of the myth of progress and people saying, well, actually, the, the indigenous way of life is more elegant ecologically. It has all these other aspects of mutual aid and exemplary forms of statelessness and anarchism that that can be observed uh, just even with the cultures alive today how, although they're few and far between but the real um some real deep backbone substance of the anarcho-primitivist critique was the this revolution in archaeology and um, cultural anthropology and, and various other uh, human ecology and cultural ecology there were waves of movements all sort of feeding back to each other in the anthropological discipline of, of academe and um, going back a number of decades not not too far back but uh, certainly there are some accounts and research being drawn upon from earlier times um, earlier records but uh, but mostly from the 70s on there had been a boom in and anthropologists really digging into, no pun intended, really digging into um, this falsehood, this false mythology, uh, this absolutely misguided uh, view of this 
transitions from so-called savagery to barbarism to civilization this idea that there was just one progression that all cultures were destined to be along at some scale and so if you were further behind in the more primitive modes of, of social organization then you were just certainly childish in your your path towards inevitable maturity towards ultimate civilization and high technology and that myth has been you know taken many forms one you could you would say is the uh the um manifest destiny of western west western westward expansion of the the settlers and pioneers this idea that it's the holy duty of good christians to colonize and conquer the heathens and to uh, re-educate them if not massacre them and extinct them with genocide this idea that there was a duty a burden of the white man to um, civilize the savages and that all was justified because of that myth of progress so turning that on its head required these very forward-thinking or backward-thinking in, in a good way anthropologists going in and actually looking at the economics of hunter-gatherer or some say gatherer-hunter to be more feminist about it and they would say that uh, really they're working what you if you could even call it work on average we're working about four hours a day and that work is fully communal fully social singing mutual child care mutual support mutual sharing of resources and what some people are calling now a sort of fierce egalitarianism for these um these foraging societies or, or hunting and gathering societies that do not produce a a significant surplus uh, that is stored and that is used to feed armies and feed specialized classes of uh priests and bankers and warriors and all of the different sectors of society that are ultimately fed by granaries and agricultural food storage so kind of simplifying that thought the, the idea is that we are extremely overworked in this in the civilized world in the agricultural world we chose we are we are now enslaved to an ecological paradigm uh, a sort of anti-ecological paradigm where we are constantly raping the earth pl plundering and pillaging it for unsustainable uh, ways of producing food and producing resources that we use to build economies and that uh, when you look at this when you really examine this idea of the primitive savages having nothing and being constantly at war and constantly the the clan of the cave bear cave bear sort of rape culture bs about how a man would just club uh, bubba clubba when he wants to get laid and just drag a woman off by her hair into a cave and that a woman had to be monogamous with a single man for protection because of so much constant throat cutting every man for themselves anarchy that that's the bullshit lie that we've all been sold or we had all been sold until thankfully these anthropologists went back and said no actually these are the most ecologically harmonious the most gender harmonious the most peaceful the most cooperative and least greedy least violent societies that exist on earth and they also also happen to be have the most material impoverishment <laughs> uh, in the eyes of the western gluttonous world of of hyper consumerism and and private individual consumption in the nuclear family where that's the real tribalism the the so-called tribalism that is constant um war amongst uh antagonistic interests of human groups those are families like every family now in the nuclear family paradigm has become its own walled garden its own citadel its own warlord uh and that that paradigm is starting to sh melt off thanks to different forms of feminism um but you know before i go off into too many sub tangents really this is all very well um <laughs> I, I don't want to i don't articulate it as the right word it's very well uh, academically formatted and structured i will say that in the way that i present this material i basically synthesized a lot of the anthropological research that's been done by feminist anthropologists and by these early i would say crypto well they were um 
they may not have called themselves anarchists, but they were build. They were certainly creating a huge amount of um, evidence for body of evidence for the case that stateless societies are really the truest, most evolved, most um, authentic form of human cultural organization. When you take all of the human history and prehistory into account, and you see that ninety nine percent of human history has been in what I would call ecological anarchy, where ecological principles are being lived by and exemplified by the practices um, that you can observe in these cultures and that we can deduce from the fossil record. Uh, that means they're not engaging in domestication, they're not settling in one place and defouling the environment and creating a bunch of festering diseases for their population, they're not overpopulating, they're staying hygienic and they're staying mobile and moving along the landscape in a way that is ecologically sustainable and was for millions of years and that is the proof in the pudding is the the time scale of the success of the adaptive strategy of hunting and gathering or gathering hunting and and forms of um i will say you know this is about 20 years old i wrote this when i was about 20 and um and and it was um kind of a synthesis of a lot of different papers that i had already written for in college so there's some kind of silly academic um, over a very pretentious kind of writing style that you have to do to write a, a thesis paper where you're using footnotes. And so there's reading it back and, and having sharing it as a podcast. It's, it's, there's awkward moments where you hear me referencing random names of authors and, and researchers, and that can be a little bit, um, jarring. So please bear with that. It is an academic paper. And, um, I feel like it just, is important for me to share it, it it helps to put in context my my really deep uh rooted luddism that is is uh paradoxically woven into the tantra of being high tech and being trying to be on top of these financial technology trends and cryptocurrency and all that stuff it's it's certainly paradoxical and i think that if i would have seen then what i've become now i would be probably not that shocked because I was one of the primitivists who did say that we're here to use every tool in the toolbox by any means necessary. If that includes being hackers, if that includes being video content producers, we all had to reconcile that. Even when we were writing print newspapers and writing zines and using microphones to do lectures and stuff, we all admitted that we were participating in the, in the, the, karmic disaster of of technology but with um with using it as a means to an end and hoping that that our calculus of of karma would would balance out in the end um yeah there is a lot of harsh criticism of anarcho-primitivism there we in my day and even to this day people who 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 um wave this flag of green anarchy and not all green anarchists are primitivists, but I would say um, it's intrinsic to to being a primitivist to to be an ecological anarchist. Some jargon there, but uh, it's it's been a contentious movement, and there have been a lot of forks in this movement over the years. Their lines have been drawn. Um, people have have really. Um, it's been a very divided movement, just like anything in, in the history of social revolutionary movements, of course, the socialists and communists and all the different heads uh, and, and talking heads and leaders of those strands and, and, and forks of the ideologies. There's as much of that sort of um, negative tribalism in these worlds. And, and so, yeah, it was a harsh time advocating this stuff there was a lot of defensiveness a lot of armoring and a, a huge void of spiritual intelligence and that's kind of why i left and why i'm at where i'm at now but it's important for me i think to share this to for people to hear this and um, it's not the best approach to this material anymore and it is somewhat outdated so some of the figures i'm sure are off by now some of the some of the anthropology has been I'm certainly updated. What I would recommend, if this is interesting to you, a listener, uh, this inquiry into the the anthropological study of, of stateless societies and of egalitarian foraging societies, um, the best real synthesis 
that that I would say could replace my, all of the work I did, which wasn't that much. You know, this was um, just a passion for 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 I guess many years. But uh, the real work that I would guide you to now is Christopher Ryan's Sex at Dawn. That body of, of of work and research the book sex at dawn is <laughs> the the absolute uh, um beautiful synthesis of of advanced sexuality studies and and advanced uh very um critical very primitivistic um uh, anarcho primitivistic research in anthropological fields so sex at dawn please let that be the next rabbit hole you go down if the, if you find this interesting and i uh, appreciate you bearing with it uh it, it is it is dear to me it's it, it's a represents a big part of of, of my my whole uh, life journey and and informs the work i do now and it's ultimately what i believe permaculture will help um help us move towards repairing the earth to a level where we can once again be wild and inhabit the wild if we only were to repair it and rebuild it in a way that that is um, fair to all other life and also favorable to our dietary and, and, and medicinal requirements as human beings. We have the ability to design ecological environments on earth with using only natural materials and no toxic or no synthetic materials no chemicals that are harmful or destructive or poisonous we can really rehabilitate the earth and rewild in the earth and and as much as back then i would have been um, very hostile to the notion of of accepting the world human population as anything um but uh, uh a recipe for disaster there are people in the permaculture movement who who have a, a very pro um approach to looking at this the population issue and saying like well we're all here we, we can all pick up a shovel plant some seeds and really get to work repairing the damage of our of our misguided recent ancestry and really putting ourselves to work and play and pleasure healing the earth healing each other and um so yeah, I'm very hopeful, and uh, please do not misinterpret Malthusianism here, which is the idea that the Earth resources are only big enough to hold so many of us, so we better start picking and choosing who to do eugenics and genocide on. There's a huge shadow of anti-population rhetoric, and I do not, never did and never will participate in, in that form of misanthropy. My and that means hating humans. I'm not a human hater. I'm a human lover, and I believe that there is there are sweeter spots to be in with our with our breeding practices and with our land use practices that favor and that 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 are fair fair to the environment and favorable to us, and and also conducive to peace and and lasting, relatively way more harmonious um, economic relationships and sexual relationships and and political relationships and boundaries and nationhood and, and tribal harmony. It's its very much in our DNA, so we can get back on track. So anyway, the last thing I'll say as a preface with all of this is that uh, I do want to update my own thinking on this sort of supremacy or the primacy of the hunter-gatherer and the forager, and there was this sort of backlash when the real... Um, rage against agriculture uh, started to come out of a radical anthropological um, milieu circles um, and the intelligentsia you know they we had this kind of false dichotomy or, or sort of black and white thinking about if you were doing any form of domestication of plants and animals then or settling you know or, or building villages or more permanent encampments than you were already sort of like on the slippery slope to of original sin you're going to go to hell and it was very religious and, and the, the the fundamentalism that came about like that it evolved in our thinking around strict hunter hunting and gathering it really has loosened up over the years as we have discovered more in the anthropological field that a lot of what we thought were ungardened environments were actually in more subtler in more subtle ways actually gardened meaning tending the fire ecology of the 
the Southwest American states, and as would be so apt now for all of the wildfires happening, that is in the absence of intelligent human cooperative forest management and fire ecology management. So in a sense, well, uh, well, well, when we looked at hunter-gatherer societies before and we saw no beasts of burden pulling plows um, and no fields of grain that we assumed that they weren't gardening, in fact, they were tending a lot of cycles and a lot of the seasons. They were nudging um, the the ecological symphony of wildness in in certain directions that were, uh, in most cases, conducive to to the health and the vibrance and the resiliency of the entire ecosystem. Meaning, again, to put it in a positive context, humans can humans were and we can still once again one day be one of the most beneficial elements in an entire ecosystem our ability to move things around to preconceive uh, our plans to strategize to communicate we have vast amounts of power that when put in service of ecology can be so beautiful and in the words of warren brush we're we're able to live beautifully on the planet with um with with these principles and ethics and with these techniques so um so yeah it's not it's not uh, anti-horticultural it's not anti-gardening it is it is more about these sweeter spots to 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 design and develop and to dwell within and to circulate through um in in, in more wise ways all right humans have been on this planet for three million years out of the trees to the grasslands of East Africa, the human species began a path of evolution that would, after many gradations of adaptation, result in anatomically modern Homo sapiens sapiens, us. While there have been many adaptations over time, including numerous hominids within the genus Australopithecus and several within the genus Homo predating our arrival, we are and have been since our dawn upright walking primates that have, for 99% of our existence, universally lived within the same ecological niche, a cognitive foraging niche that has proven successful in every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. Like all other wild animals, hominids subsisted upon the food sources freely available within the environment through foraging. Hominids gathered and hunted in a nomadic pattern on the highest trophic level as omnivorous secondary consumers in the food chain, and without the biological and anatomical tools our primate progenitors were equipped with, such as agility, tails, etc. We have adapted to a life in the wild with upright walking, culture, consciousness, and technology. Contrary to the popular myth interpreted from the works of such archaic social thinkers as Hobbes, life in the wild is not nasty, brutish, and short. Had hominids not been such a successful organism, we surely would have not survived and have been able to adapt to diverse environments with only cultural rather than biological evolution. The success of our species as facilitated by our cognitive niche is exemplified by the manufacture of stone tools, the most archaeologically well-preserved indication of technological innovation. The first stone tools appear along with human bones in the fossil record 2.4 million years ago with the Homo habilis. Since then, stone tool use and innovation has been to the human race what nests are to birds and environmental modification essential to survival. This simple technological tradition underwent many significant changes in design and elaboration, but never to an extent that necessitated a technological system. Tools could be made for a day's use to be left behind and made again the next day in a new location. In addition to tools, many other implements were made, but none that could not be carried on the backs of these nomadic hominids, or made at an impermanent location to be left behind. The system of foraging, nomadism, and tool use proved effective for colonizing diverse and distant environments throughout the planet by 30,000 BC. This, as also mentioned, was the universal history of humanity for 99% of our existence. Before discussing the events within the most recent 1%, more data on the social, economic, and political nature of banned societies should be outlined. All wildlife exists and has evolved because of the availability of vast resources that can sustain diverse ecological systems and populations of flora and fauna. Human organisms, like all others, are only on the planet because it freely provides plentiful wild means of sustenance that can be extracted without complex artificial technological systems. We do not find ourselves in a condition of scarcity that caused constant throat-cutting warfare in the wild. 
Rather, the wild provided freely all of the means of sustenance. Foraging did not continue for three million years because it was unstable or unpredictable. It persisted, and in some places persists today, because it is the most effective, least labor-intensive, most stable, and most healthful mode of existence. Every other attempted mode has proven to destroy either or both the environment and the egalitarian anarchy of the foraging mode. Through foraging in a world of such vast free resources, humans have lived in harmony with the environment and with each other. As no resource was scarce, no resource was controlled, no property was owned, and every produced item was fully communal. The Kong San of the Kalahari Desert spend only a few hours per day engaged in subsistence activities. They share everything and have no interest in material accumulation, power, or domination. Both men and women hold spiritual power. Gender equality is expressively valued. Diseases are few, leaders are non-existent. Both men and women equally partake in the consensus process. All food is shared, peaceful cooperation is constant, and selfishness is highly discouraged. This society is one of the last foraging societies on the planet. Their way of life tells the story of humanity since our dawn. This is the story of egalitarian, wild, free, stateless, ecological harmony. Harris states that the few remaining foraging societies are the closest analogs we have to the natural state of humanity. Leon DeVore contextualized the foraging mode in stating, Of the estimated 80 billion people who have ever lived on Earth, over 90% were hunter-gatherers. About 6% have lived by agriculture, and the remaining few percent have lived in industrial societies. Most foragers have been assimilated, conquered, or driven into marginal environments. The global system of industrial resource extraction has affected every culture. Because of this, hunter-gatherers can't be simply defined today by subsistence strategy, as many are now forced to partake in market economies to some extent. Lee and DeVore provide the following. Hunter-gatherers have few possessions, live in small groups, do not hold rights to communal resources, do not have food surplus, do not control resource areas on the landscape, and live in flexible populations where all can freely move with other bands. 12,000 years ago, the foraging population of the planet did not exceed 4 million. These 4 million anatomically modern Homo sapiens sapiens lived as nomadic Paleolithic foragers in every terrestrial environment on the planet. At this time, a few of the highly dispersed human foraging bands experienced what is theorized to be either environmental change concurrent with the end of the Pleistocene, or self-induced population pressure that forced a radical and historically unprecedented shift in subsistence strategy. These few of the previously all true foraging bands would begin to dredge the path to plant and animal domestication, or the enslavement of flora and fauna for the sole use as an artificial as opposed to natural subsistence base. Fetter notes, beginning about 12,000 years ago, some human groups began not just foraging food, but actually producing it. Various groups began tending plants and taming animals, allowing only those with characteristics desirable from a human subsistence standpoint to survive and propagate. This shift to food production occurred independently in several places in the new and old worlds. Each agricultural revolution involved manipulation of local wild plants and or animals. The vast majority of the foods we rely on today were domesticated by ancient people many millennia ago. Theories about exactly why certain societies experiencing natural or artificially induced scarcity made this shift are many, but the only certainty is that it is not a universal human mechanism. It is not inevitable nor part of any Marxian unilineal progression of cultural evolution. Feder states this well. If there was a single universal cause for the origin of plant and animal domestication, nearly all foragers would have developed a subsistence system based on agriculture or animal husbandry when faced with the same or similar climatic or demographic conditions. That this universal adaptation did not occur is a clear indication that different cultural groups can and did respond differently to changes in the environment or in their population. Whatever the cause of the genesis of the enslavement of the wild, it occurred in two contexts. The primary context is that of a culturally independent process whereby the original foraging mode is gradually replaced by agriculture or pastoralism. In a secondary context, domestication is an external force instituted by other cultures. 
as was the case for Neolithic Europe and the American Southwest. In the primary context, domestication occurred over the span of a few thousand years, independently in three main areas of the world, Southwest Asia, China, and Mesoamerica. In these cases, the transition from foraging to intensive agriculture was not, as it is mythically described in popular discourse, a universal Neolithic revolution. This myth implies intent and consciousness of the process, when in fact, no one generation could have been conscious of making any dramatic changes. Generally, people seem to have accepted the process as a natural way of obtaining the resources humans needed. Beyond a shift from wild to artificial food sources, Neolithic societies shifted from a mobile to a sedentary way of life, the problems with which will be discussed below. Another important shift that will be addressed is the beginning of population explosions that could never before have been possible with a limited, though plentiful, natural food resource base. Before moving on to the social, political, and economic problems caused by domestication and their exacerbation under civilization, a few important elements of this shift must be noted. For one, domestication is a break from an ecological dynamic of equilibrium that most complex organisms live within. Just as non-human predators may overhunt prey, cause a decline in prey population, and then experience proportional food source scarcity and population decline of their own while the prey population recovers, foraging band societies also live within this context. Resource depletion was offset by band societies utilizing the strategies of minimal population, usually no more than 50 people in a band, and frequent changes of location so as to not overtax a local environment's resources. Subtle societies, by contrast, cannot pack up and move every day or week. They are stationary and thus population dispersal cannot occur, nor a mitigated impact on a local environment. Whatever scarcity occurs and whatever internal problems arise, they can only expand, they cannot move away completely. Secondly, domestication yields surplus, the kind that can never exist in a foraging society. The artificial production of food energy through either fields or animals creates a storable surplus that can, as never before, be generated to feed an increasing population that could never have been sustained by wild food sources. While more food can be produced, there is no indication it is either consistent or sustainable. Drought, soil erosion and salinization, forest clearing, and the decline in biodiversity all compromise the long-term yields of agriculture. Feder cites Diamond's agriculture, the worst mistake in the history of the human race, to explain that while clearly agriculture can provide more food than most foraging systems, it is by no means a comparison to the quality of forager caloric intake, this incites the final consideration. As the dietary diversity represented in the foraging mode declines with the intensification of monoculture crop production, so declines the health of the population. Cohen and Armelagos, in their study of paleopathology associated with Neolithic societies in North, Central, and South America, the Eastern Mediterranean, Western Europe, the Middle East, Southern Asia, and Nubia, found sharp declines in nutritional health as indicated by skeletal analysis. Their data prove that pre-existing hunter-gatherers had higher health and nutrition. Furthermore, infectious disease increased as a result of the substance shift. Fetter notes, Agriculture itself doesn't cause disease, it merely establishes the conditions conducive for disease to spread, large, dense, sedentary populations. Cohen and Armelagos also found that malnutrition was higher among Neolithic societies, that hunter-gatherers lived longer than later agriculturalists in the same region, Taken as a whole, these indicators fairly clearly suggest an overall decline in the quality and probably the length of human life in agricultural societies. Finally, the archaeological record of the Pleistocene yields only rare evidence for interpersonal violence, as would be indicated in skeletal remains by intentionally inflicted wounds. However, in the assemblages of Neolithic skeletons, such wounds seem to be common, and not of simply one person killing another, but of whole sets of skeletons, thus indicating group warfare. In Fetter's analysis, Perhaps the problems inherent in an agricultural way of life and the always present potential for a collapse of the subsistence base are at the heart of this phenomenon. The pan-continental emergence of domestication in the form of pastoralism and agriculture, though beginning 12,000 years ago, was not a sweeping universal process, at least not at first. Harris notes that it has been only in the last 2,000 years that the majority of people in the world have not lived in hunting and gathering societies. Neolithic farming societies 
alone could not have conquered the planet without the creation of another ecocidal artificial institution, civilization. While not all Neolithic societies became agricultural states, many did, building empires, expanding, enslaving, and conquering. As the focus of this piece is to contextualize the nature of civilization, I will make only brief mention of the mitigated forms of domestication that form the bridge between foraging societies and civilized empires. As stated above, all societies on the planet prior to 12,000 years ago were foraging societies. Since then, those that chose to continue foraging have either been exiled to high mountains or deserts, decimated or assimilated. However, intensive agriculture and foraging are not the only modes of subsistence. And not all modes of domesticated existence are destined to increase in complexity to the point of plow agriculture or civilization. Many forms of less destructive domestication, though not much less recent than intensive agriculture, have been tried and seem to be far more sustainable than the more intensive means of domestication. Horticulture or shifting gardening is a form of domestication that while still being somewhat artificial, tends to take place within natural systems and cycles as opposed to outright replacement of existing ecosystems. To conclude this brief mention of the continuum between foraging and civilization, I will quickly outline the known scale of modes of socio-political complexity and subsistence. The first level of complexity is the band, next the lineage, the tribe, the big man, the chiefdom, and the agricultural state. Bands are egalitarian and almost universally foraging. Lineage systems occurred in incipient agricultural societies where consolidation of surplus and property made descent a factor in differentiated wealth. Tribes trace their lineage to a single ancestor and are usually a hundred people or more and are almost invariably horticultural, pastoral, or agricultural. Big man societies, unlike tribes that have no institutionalized leaders, have some of the first notable status differentiation with a male provisioner at the top of a minimal scale of stratification. Chiefdoms can be thought to be a more intensified state of the big man. More power is consolidated, military power exists, an ideology of supremacy of the political and religious elite is imposed, and the populace's food production goes first to the chief for distribution to the community. In all of the above-mentioned systems, save the foraging band, property, surplus, stratification, and differential wealth exist. Furthermore, almost universally, the status of women declines drastically in all but the foraging band. As men begin to control the productive base and marginalize women to the domestic sphere, patriarchy begins. Bredel and Sargent state in their discussion of Engels' The Origin of Family Private Property in the State. In Engels' scheme, gender relations were linked to changes in material conditions because the ownership of productive property, initially domesticated animals, was concentrated in the hands of men. In Bonvillain's discussion of materialism in Women and Men, Cultural Constructs of Gender, it is stated that the organization of production in each type of culture has an impact on political, economic, and social activities, and that classifying cultures according to their predominant mode of production is a useful analytic approach in investigating the ways that gender concepts and behaviors are organized. Civilization takes agriculture, domestication, stratification, patriarchy, ecocide, warfare, famine, disease, slavery, conquest, and expansion to the highest level. The term civilization is derived from the root civis, meaning city. Beyond this simple definition of civilization as a human environment, it should be thought also to inextricably entail urban human settlements wherein social stratification, monumental architecture, state political structure, large and dense populations, intensive agriculture, and food surplus used to feed non-producing elites exist. The first civilizations began in West Asia in 7000 BC, in Egypt in 4000 BC, in Sudan in 1500 BC, in southern Mexico in 2000 BC, in South Asia in 5500 BC, in China in 3000 BC, in Crete in 3000 BC, in Highland Mexico in 500 BC, in South America in 250 AD, and in Khmer in 500 AD. As is commonly known, all ancient civilizations have collapsed, with the remnants left either to decay or for a new trajectory to be moved towards by the survivors. Cowgill notes that almost all collapsed civilizations continue, if in an attenuated form, and often begin the empire-building process again only to endure another collapse. To replace the misleading notion of collapse, he uses political fragmentation to explain the end of all the early state societies. As with domestication, many theories have been put forth to explain the emergence of civilization. 
Rather than addressing all of these, suffice it to note, almost all ancient civilizations were surrounded by walls, fortified from attack, indicating that civilization was just the next logical step in the intensification of protecting power elite and control over property, the stolen resources of people and nature. Again, it is men who are the elite, the managers, and the dominators. It would necessitate infinite space to fully address the structure and history of civilizations. For the purposes of this piece, I will focus on a more universal nature of civilization, what it invariably entails, and some of the more telling evidence for its destructive effects on all within and beyond its walls. All civilizations are what can be thought of as complex anthropogenic structures on the landscape that represent the appropriation and transformation of energy forms into a hierarchical complex system. All human-made structures and systems necessitate energy sources. In the earliest civilizations, this energy was extracted from that of living and harvested plants, animals, and humans. Today, the energy fueling the system includes fossil fuels, charcoal, nuclear energy, etc. The impetus for this kind of energy transformation is the imperative of what would have previously been the chiefs and chiefdom societies, now rulers of states, to amass, protect, and perpetuate power, wealth, territory, and hegemony. It is all but the ruling elite within civilization that are either slaves or servants to the tyrants and their projects, be they conquest, monument construction, expansion, war, food production, art, science, music, etc. Servitude for sustenance provision by the state has only intensified today as almost half of the world lives in urban environments. Unlike the old civilizations where village subsistence economies were either in the area or not yet faded from cultural memory, the populace of global civilizations have no choice but to be slaves to those who control the means of sustenance. However, Fetter mentions, in older civilizations, most people worked harder than people did who lived in simpler Neolithic villages, and they gave up much of the control they had over their lives. Most people were needed to produce a surplus, part of which they turned over to the temple or the army or the state bureaucracy. Ponting further concludes that until the last 200 years, most of the world lived as agriculturalists outside of civilization. Within this context, controlled by empires, spare resources were taken by the elite or directed into major projects such as temples, palaces, pyramids, and cathedrals. Further, in all civilizations, the political elite attempt to perpetuate the illusion of control over or divine ordination by the deities and the supernatural. Ponting mentions that civilizations build their cities according to complex designs reflecting religious symbols of divine order. These ceremonial centers are found in virtually every early settled society. Bredel and Sargent discuss Mayan and Incan political theology. Political hierarchies were legitimized by cosmological explanations in early states. Rulers legitimized myths that established them as mediators between the natural and supernatural worlds. As with the enslavement of classes, animals, and the environment, the nature of civilizations, as with most all sedentary societies, is to enslave women to the devalued domestic sphere. Bredel and Sargent associate a shift in gender ideology with the rise of the state. Women are increasingly subjected to the patriarchal domination of men in their natal families, later their husbands, and their affinal kin. Women are disempowered by men and valued only as mothers and for their purity. Rap is certain that with civilization came a rapid decline in women's status. To rap, there is a consensus that with civilization, women as a social category become subjugated further to the male head of the household. The explanation provided is as follows. With a decrease in reciprocal relations among kin, and inequality of access to productive resources begins. Eventually, class society emerges out of the ruins of women's autonomous alliances. With industrialization and modernization, the devaluation of women's work only intensifies. Lockwood states that work becomes commodity or cash crop production, or wage employment, activities that were typically dominated by men after their introduction. Men, then, become associated with a formal, productive sphere that is often physically, spatially separated from the activities of the household and domestic sphere. Bonvillain adds to the discussion of ideology and status decline in state societies, noting that at the root of intensified gender hierarchies lies the ideology of male dominance. Gender biases exist within notions of women's work, legal rights, and quality of family and social life. With this cursory analysis of the universal structure and nature of civilization complete, at least for the demands of this piece, the focus will now shift to more qualitative and quantitative data from modern and ancient civilizations on the social, political, and economic elements of life under or affected by civilization. Just as civilization is a recent cancerous artificial entity, its grasp on the world population, at least within the walls, is of even less antiquity. 
Only within the last 200 years has civilization assimilated a major amount of the world population. Until 1800, only 2.5% of the world population was urbanized. By the 1980s, this number increased to 41%. The conditions of life within civilization have, for the majority of the population, including to a lesser degree the elites, have been essentially equivalent to the conditions of disease, death, and poverty within modern Iraq under the sanctions regime. To Ponting, the history of settled societies is one of grinding poverty. People had few possessions, were miserable, and spent most of their time on a razor's edge of survival, obtaining only the absolute minimum food resources to survive. Civilization is also the history of constant low-level disease, punctuated by virulent outbreaks killing major portions of the population. Only recently have any technological solutions to this constant rate of poverty been found, and at that, only for the few. Half of the world still lives in poverty. In terms of disease, it has only been within the last 200 years that the emergence of sanitation systems and water treatment facilities, rather than actual advances in medicine and vaccination, has managed to stave off the tide of infectious epidemics. In fact, medical intervention after infection seems to have had, since 1900 in the U.S., an effect of only 3.5% on reducing mortality rates. Pathology has, up until the 19th century, plagued civilization. Beginning with the domestication of animals, pathology exponentially increased in settled societies. Ponting notes that tuberculosis originated from cattle, the common cold came from the horse, leprosy from water buffalo. We now share 65 diseases with dogs, 50 with cattle, 46 with sheep and goats, and 42 with pigs. He further notes that with the non-existence of many domesticated animals in the New World, there had been no history of disease within the human populations to make them resistant to all of those that were brought by Europeans. Beyond domesticated animals, the conditions of settled societies as mentioned above allowed infectious disease to flourish. Even beyond the walls of the city, on the battlefield and all wars predating the 20th century, more soldiers died of disease than to casualties to the enemy. With the modernization of civilization over the last 200 years, the susceptibility to plague and massive outbreaks has been offset, at least in the first world, only to be replaced by lifestyle pathologies caused by diet and carcinogen consumption. Cancer and cardiovascular disease caused two-thirds of the mortality in industrialized nations. Heart disease was virtually unknown a hundred years ago outside of rich populations. Now it kills 40% of men and 20% of women in industrialized nations. Cancer is contracted by one in three Americans, with one in four a fatality. Cavities virtually unknown in the prehistoric fossil record are now proportional with the rise in industrial sugar consumption. While pathologies have exponentially increased first with domestication, then cities, and now industrialization, the war against communal culture has had notable effects. Atomization and alienation from community has been increased as modern technology has given us more incentive to cyberize our sensory input, to consume, to be individualistic, etc. Beyond the devastating effects on the health, gender equality, economic quality, and individual autonomy of civilized people, the tentacles of civilization have devastated all of the integrated international communities, economies, and environments from which they have extracted resources. Only 30% of the world lives within industrial society. All the rest are subject to extraction-induced scarcity, left in remnant colonies established to sustain civilization and industrialization. Indigenous people have for thousands of years been decimated and enslaved by civilization. Only recently has independence been granted, but it is of illusory empowerment. Just as the freed American slave was no longer coerced by force to work in the fields, economics kept the dynamic of servitude in full effect. While a colonizing empire may no longer directly control third world economies, the conditions of world market dependence maintains the role of management corporations, often the same that were operating before independence. It has only been by way of Western industrial society's conquest and integration of global resources that it has managed to expand beyond the bioregional constraints of all predating civilizations. While this discussion has only been a brief overview of both the nature of the foraging mode and that of civilization, the literature is immense. A critique of civilization and the message implicit in the knowledge of the true harmony of band-level existence is now textbook anthropology. The myths of primitive savagery and the progress of civilization are no longer protected by ethnocentric insularity, nor a hegemonic theology. It should no longer be believed that humans are by nature destructive. It must be known that humans are by nature cooperative, egalitarian, anarchic, and ecological. Further, it must be elucidated that the trajectory of civilization does not represent a natural, inevitable progression. 
nor the universal path of humanity. This can be illustrated in this manner. Ten to twelve thousand years ago, all but a few of the four million humans were foragers. Today, the poles have shifted to where now most of the six billion humans are dependent on artificial environments for subsistence. If one's unit of analysis from which to draw conclusions about the nature of human society is the modern state of our species, it would seem logical that a natural progression must have occurred to bring virtually everyone into the enslavement of domesticated existence. Though if one's unit of analysis is the full time scale of our species, the modern situation should appear quite unrepresentative of the nature of human society. What exists today is a last chapter of the story of at least one culture, namely Western civilization, the most spatially expansive, virulent incarnation of civilization. It is by no means the history of humanity nor the inevitable future of primitive society. The intent of this piece is to contextualize the nature of human society and the political, social, and economic modes of organization it has taken. What should be clear is that this 1% of history and the destruction of the last 10,000 years is not the history of humanity. It is the history of one failed mode of existence, and most recently one collapsing culture. Though it has decimated much of the wild in its path, there still exist wild nature and peoples who cannot be implicated in the history of domestication and civilization. At this moment, what truly represents humanity is not the cancer that has artificially conquered the planet, but the last foragers and indigenous cultures whose myths, stories, and cosmologies are their own. To Fetter, civilization is not an inevitable sequence of change, not an exorable march of progress from ancient hominids to Western society. Our society represents merely one point along one of many possible pathways, not better or more evolved than any others, and in no way an inevitable outcome of cultural evolution. In conclusion, the wisdom of Harris. I believe it is essential that we understand our past. Once we are clear about the roots of human nature, we can refute once and for all the notion that it is a biological imperative for our kind to form hierarchical groups. An observer viewing life shortly after cultural takeoff would easily have concluded that our species was destined to be irredeemably egalitarian, that someday the world would become divided into aristocrats and commoners, masters and slaves, billionaires and homeless beggars, would have seemed wholly contrary to human nature as evidenced in the affairs of every human society then on earth. Oh.